Good evening. Well, we're starting a, a series for this week on uh, the birth of Christ, a variety of different texts and passages. And I'm going to be in Philippians tonight, so if you want to open the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Have you found that the holidays can interestingly be a time of family stress? I mean, the time that is supposed to be the most joyful, where we are completely humbled by what Christ did by coming here and taking on human form, which we're going to talk about tonight, can also be a time of friction and intensity. Of course, the holidays opens the door frequently for family, perhaps even friends, that we don't see through the year, and it just enlivens or rekindles the conflict that has not been resolved. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's just interesting that at this time where we're reminded of peace, we struggle to, to find it. And that's kind of, well, a little bit what I have to talk to about tonight, not necessarily our family, but resolving issues because when Christ came, he came because of obedience to the Father. We're going to talk about exactly what he gave up to be here and he came into a warring world. And Paul is writing, chapter 4, you can turn there real quick, to the Philippian church. Actually, a few weeks ago, I preached out of Philippians on a Sunday. It was chapter two, uh, chapter 1. And you won't find another New Testament book that talks about rejoicing in joy as much of the book of Philipp as the book of Philippians. So the Philippian church were some of Paul's prized and uh, maybe favored. I don't know if favored's the right word, but he loved them deeply. He referred to them, the church family, as my joy and my crown. So there was something about that church that just really gripped Paul. Of course, we know how the church began. It was in the book of Acts. Paul and Timothy and Titus and another person, four of them, were headed to modern-day Turkey and were going to bring the gospel to these certain areas. This is Acts chapter 16. And two times we read, but the Holy Spirit kept them for going where they thought that God was calling them to go. So two times, the Holy Spirit closed the door on them. And they end up on the coast really perplexed, like, Lord, we thought you were directing us here. You've ever had that happen? Where you knew that the Lord was directing you, you knew that the Lord was directing you in a certain area. And when you got there, that's not where he was directing you at all. And that's what happened to these guys. So they end up on the coast, the Aegean coast, and the four of them are a little bit confused because, Lord, we thought you were in this trip. And so they prayed together for the Lord's will. And that night, Paul had a dream. And in his dream, a man from Macedonia, the Greece area, I think it was actually, said, would you please come over here? We need your help. And so he took that as God's direction. Be careful, by the way, I've said this many times, of thinking that all of your dreams means the Lord's talking to you. You could have had pepperoni pizza at 11 o'clock at night and have all kinds of dreams, but it's not the Lord probably. Anyhow, so they knew it was God's will. They get in a ship, they go across the Aegean Sea, they're in Greece now. And as they're making their way down through town after town after town, they end up in a pretty large city called Philippi. It was a Roman colony, so there's a lot of Roman soldiers there. It's a very wealthy city. 
I believe at that time it was, it was one of the capitals that Rome had had, although it wasn't in Rome. And uh, there wasn't a synagogue. There wasn't a place for them to, to go to church for Paul and his three fellows to get the synagogue. Usually the towns had synagogues. This town did not. It was a Gentile city. And so what they did is they went down to the river. This is all in Acts chapter 16. They went down to the river and they wanted to pray and seek the Lord and have their own little service. And when they got down there, there was a group of three or four women who were also praying. And Paul got to talking to them and shared the gospel with them, the good news of the Lord Jesus. And all four of them made a commitment to Christ right on the spot. It is believed that these four women took on leadership roles in the church, which was not uncommon in that particular culture. They took on leadership roles. And two of them particularly that were strong women who loved the Lord probably opened their homes, and that was the first two house churches in Philippi. Well, apparently, these two strong, godly women who stood at Paul's side, we'll read about that in a moment, in the work of the gospel, ended up having a conflict that they could not resolve. Strong women, conflict that they couldn't resolve. Leaders in the church, women that were fearless in terms of their faith, because they lived in a dangerous day. But apparently they had issues that happened that they could not get past. And so in chapter 4, Paul is writing to them. We'll start at verse 2. And he gives instructions for this problem that is really, in my opinion, starting to impact the church now. The church is starting to become a little divided. You know how we are as people. Generally, the people that we're closest to, we kind of feel like we'll stand with them and we can kind of take sides and we understand their story but not the other person's story and here we go. And that's what was happening. So Paul writes uh, to one of his leaders, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I entreat... Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche, the two women, to agree in the Lord. In other words, if you have differences, one says black and the other one says white, and no one's going to convince you differently, at least you can do for the sake of Christ is just agree that you both love the Lord. He's in you and he's doing a work in your life. You can agree on that much. Okay. So he says, I want you. I'm pleading. Entreat means to plead. He says, I'm pleading that these two women, they're at odds with one another at least come together with a shared faith in Christ and resolve their issues. But he's asking this friend of his, who's probably an elder, to oversee the matter and make sure it gets done. Which would be, you know, today we would call it, maybe he was a pastoral mediator. That's something I do here. When two people can't work it out or an entire family is split, they come to me and I talk with them and, we find a happy medium in Christ. So that's exactly what he's doing. So then he says, verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companions, so there's someone there that he's close to, we perceive that it was one of the elders of the church. I ask you also, true companion, to help these women. They're not getting it done. On their own. You know, sometimes people can get so stubborn that they don't even want to be mediated. 
They're just going to hold their ground. But the difficult thing about that is that's not God's will for people to be in conflict, especially within a church or Christians at all, for that matter. Ongoing conflict. And so they're not resolving it, so he's calling an elder to help these women. Because it's endangering the body of Christ in Philippi. It's becoming a toxic scenario. And by the way, that's really heartbreaking. If you've ever been into a church where there's a lot of toxicity, or whether it's in the leadership or in the church and nothing's being done about it, there's nothing more heartbreaking than going to a fellowship where you're supposed to be encouraged in your faith every time you go there and to leave beat down because there's conflict. I ask you, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. These women are strong, they're courageous, they love Christ, and they work by my side in danger and in threat and in harassment. They stood by my side. I love these women. They're my sisters. Help them, though. In this situation, they work with me side by side in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So he's asking, he's asking his elder to get with these women, to humble themselves and resolve the matter. Okay, it's very, very fascinating. Now what we're going to see, this is very, very interesting to me, is we're going to read in a moment that in chapter 2 of Philippians, there is, well, it's verse 1 through 11, so about 11 verses that talk about the birth of Christ and what he left to come to here, to be born among us, to become familiar with us, to feel our pain our sorrow to teach the good news of hope which he hung on a cross for and shed his blood for. And the message that Paul gives is very fascinating to me. He's talking to a church about resolving a problem of conflict. And he immediately breaks out in this doxology or it's even a hymn about talking about the humility of Christ. And so you would think that he would give them some tools and some tips on how to resolve their conflict, but but instead, he uses the birth of Christ as an example of what they need to do with each other. Humble themselves. Let's continue on. Let's go back to chapter 2. So that's the issue at hand. Now chapter 2. He writes these things to the Philippians. They all know, and this is the first time I've actually seen these verses in this particular context or problem. It's specifically, I mean, there's no doubt that he's talking about this problem when he writes these verses. There's not a doubt, as you'll see. So he says in chapter 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Now, by the way, before I go any further, the word if doesn't really mean if as we understand it. It means since. The word actually means since. So what he's saying to them, and he's going to address their issues, he's saying, so as believers, since you have had encouragement in Christ, Since you've experienced as believers the strength, the hope, the courage, the forgiveness, and the joy that you have in Christ, meaning you just don't know about him, he lives within you, and you are in him. So the first thing he's doing when he's talking about this conflict that's unresolvable is he's telling them, Take a good, long look 
at the Lord Jesus. Because he is the one that you are to imitate in your broken, unreconcilable relationships. Look at him and look at him hard and long and look at what he did and why. So he goes, since you've experienced the encouragement that comes from Christ, and since you've received the comfort of his love, that means his grace. That means the way in which he called us and approached us and noticed us and picked us up from the mud of life in such a kind, kind way. Many of us here know where we came from and we still don't understand why the Lord called us. We don't understand it. It's beyond our wildest dream. That type of love that we didn't deserve But he says, since you've experienced the Lord and the strength he's given you and the kindness, the comfort, the understanding that he gave you, and since you are in participation with other Christians in the fellowship, since you have the Holy Spirit living within you and he binds you together as a family, you know what the fellowship is like. You can go to different continents and not even talk the same language of a Christian individual, but when you find out you're believers, you are instantly brothers and sisters and you love one another like that fast. That is the binding and the tethering of the Holy Spirit. And he goes, since you're in a fellowship and you're held together by these bands, these cords, Of the Holy Spirit's work. Since that's happening. And then he says. And since. You've learned affection. And sympathy from the Lord. You've learned how to be gracious. When you didn't even know how to spell that word before. You've learned how to be patient and kind. And not insist on your own way. You've learned how to take the high road. And step aside without making a big deal about it because the Lord's taught you that and he goes and complete my joy so what Paul is saying is the Lord has showed you all of these things in your conversion in your relationship with him he showed you grace he showed you comfort love strong fellowship and encouragement and since he's done that Now you have to do this. He says, I want you to make my joy complete. I want to stop right there. I need to get a little drink of water real quick. I want you to make my joy complete. Now, Paul is in prison. He's on house arrest. When he was in Jerusalem, he was... There was a couple of attempts to uh, ambush him and kill him because the Jews hated him. And he finally saw the danger he was in. So he's standing trial between one of the tri- in front of one of the tribunals and he says, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. I want you to give me my case and take it to Caesar. And because Paul was a Roman citizen, they had to do that for him. And so they put him on a ship and they sent him to Rome. He's in Rome now. His stay there in Rome, well, Caesar required at least a two-year minimum before he would stand trial. And he probably was there another couple years. So anywhere from two to four years, Paul is taken to Rome. He is greeted by some brothers in Christ, some Christians. He knew there were some Christians in the area. But the, the, the Romans, Caesar demanded that he be put on house arrest. He had to pay his own rent, and he was on house arrest. The other thing that was really a benefit for him is that they allowed people, magistrates, common workers, the military for sure, and I'll explain that in a moment, to come in and Paul would spend hours every day teaching them about Christ. They allowed him to do that. 
The other thing that was very interesting is he was chained by his wrist with about an eight-inch chain to a Roman guard, 24-7. How many of you were there when I taught on this a few weeks ago on a Sunday? He was chained by the wrist to a Roman guard 24-7. Imagine every time Paul wanted to step away or go to the bathroom or do whatever, there was a tug. And, you know, what I, what I think is who was really chained? Who was the one that was really chained? I think it was the Roman guard. Then he says, hey, look, because a lot of his friends that didn't live in Philippi were very concerned for him. They hadn't heard from him for two to four years. They're very concerned. They didn't know if he was martyred. They didn't know if he was in a different country. They had no idea what was going on with their spiritual father. And so he finally wrote a letter, and it was this letter. And he told them, not to worry. Don't worry about me. He goes, actually, don't think the worst. You know how we have a tendency to do when we have anxiety and we don't know the answer yet that we want to know right now? We have a tendency to think the worst. And so they're thinking the worst. What happened to our spiritual father? And then he writes in Romans, he says, I want you to know, in chapter 1, verse 12, what really has happened to me. Don't feel bad for me. God has placed me here. And the word placed or put me here means he assigned me to be here. God assigned me to be chained to a Roman guard, to be on house arrest because it has become my platform to share the gospel. And he says, as a result of this, the whole palace guard has heard the gospel and many have come to Christ. He would have had no other way to access the military and the higher-ups with the gospel unless he was chained to a guard and had an audience. And so he preached to them all the time. He goes, that's what's really going on. And he said, I'm put here. I'm assigned. This is my post. God has given me my post. What is your assignment? Notice that his assignment is highly uncomfortable. There was no surety of how long he would be there. There was no declaration if he was going to lose his life or not. Consequently, he did not. He did go to see Caesar. For some reason, they let him go. And then he went out to preach the gospel again for another couple years. And then they rearrested him, brought him to the Mamertine prison, which is in Rome to this day. It's about three blocks from the Colosseum. And actually, Paul spent his last days there. Luke was with him, and Luke wrote 2 Timothy which is his deathbed letter. And not long after that, he had his head cut off. He was marched around in chains around a half mile away, and they cut his head off. Okay, This particular time, he was set free for a while. And he goes, anyhow, he says the whole palace guard has heard the gospel because I'm here. Don't feel bad for me. So Paul is in prison. He doesn't know his outcome. He doesn't have full liberty. He's going to stand before a Caesar. And he says, please, experience and live out your faith in Christ during this conflict And make my joy complete. In other words, what he's saying is I've had a lot of joy in my two to four years because of what the Lord's doing through me and in me. Notice it has nothing to do with comfort. I have a lot of joy. But because I've heard that you're not able to resolve your problems, 
My joy is no longer complete. My joy's been eclipsed. Now, we as parents know what that's like. For those of us especially have adult kids, if our adult children don't get along, they'll never want to talk to another or join a Christmas meal together or they can't stand each other. Our joy is not complete. It's complete in the Lord, as you know what I mean, but there's something missing. I had a dear friend when I was in Bible college, young pastor. He was from India. His name was Solomon. And his grandmother was a very, very sweet lady. They had quite the history there. They still have the history there. They're in India. They have a couple of orphanages there. But many, many years ago, his grandmother and grandfather uh, were converted to Christ. And his grandfather wouldn't denounce his faith, and so they tied him to a horse and dragged him through the city streets because he would not denounce his faith faith for Hinduism. I don't think they killed him, but they dragged him through the streets to frighten him into changing his mind. And um, the grandmother was very, very devoted. And when she was on her deathbed, Solomon was there, and he was talking to her, and he's saying, how can we pray for you, Grandma? You're going to go be with the Lord. And she said, I'm heartbroken because two of my children cannot reconcile. The only request I have before I go see the Lord is that my adult kids reconcile their faith. That is exactly what Paul feels here. He goes, please, resolve it. You're my children. I'm your father. Please. And then he continues on. And he says, uh, now this is what you need to do. Verse 2. I want you to become, I want you to have, be of the same mind. That means, I want your mind to find agreement in the Lord. I want you to think clearly. I want you to think like Christ. I want you to have the mind of Christ in this situation that you find yourself. I want you to have the same mind and think correctly. You know, the theme of trail that's been the theme for over 40 years is think like Jesus. That's exactly what Paul is saying. I want you as a church family to start thinking like Christ considering this conflict that you're having. I want you to have the same love. Enjoy the same patience and grace and love that the Lord Jesus gave to you with each other. How can we receive His grace and His love or forgiveness and not extend the same? Paul says in other letters, Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. So in the same measure that the Lord has forgiven you, you forgive your brothers in Christ and your sisters. Same measure. It is the epitome of hypocrisy to enjoy the grace of our Lord Jesus and not extend it to our other brothers and sisters. It's hypocritical. So I want you to have the same love. I want you to be in full accord which simply means I want you to rise above the problems. I want you to rise above the problems and don't hold those against each other any long, any longer. Rise above the issues. And then he says, and then he stops right there and be of one mind. Okay. So he tells them what they need to do first. They need to get on the same page. They need to agree in the Lord. They need to focus on the relationships because they're in Christ. This is natural for believers. We can't do it without the Holy Spirit. But it's more natural for us to forgive and live in the love of Christ than it is to be in conflict. That's not natural for us anymore. Did you know that? But it's not easy. It just doesn't happen because we came to Christ. Do you know what I mean? 
living in unity just doesn't happen because that's what we're told to do. It takes sacrifice and humility and wisdom, yeah? Or you can jokingly say, like I say to my wife, I said many times, honey, we would have a perfect marriage if you just change your attitude. That's all you have to do. We'll have a perfect marriage. She goes, get out of here. He tells them what to do. Live in the comfort and the love of Christ with your brothers and sisters in Christ. This should be natural for you. And a good example is in, in the Gospels, Jesus talks about forgiveness in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 15. And in Matthew chapter 5, he talks about those of us who have offended our brother. We were the culprit. We caused the problem. And he says, if you come before me with a gift of worship, leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile with your brother, then come back and bring your gift. He's saying, your worship means nothing. Your gift of praise is not sincere unless you go back and you seek forgiveness from that brother. Then come and offer your gift. I remember years ago, I was a brand new pastor, and there was a, I was 29, and there was an 18-year-old girl in my church, uh, and she just kept complaining to me about how much she disliked her mother, and they couldn't get along, and and, and she lived there, and she just, her mother was horrible, and she just always complained about her mother. And I was in the church early one morning, and I was studying, and I came out, our doors, we kept our doors open, you know, early in the morning, and she's lifting her hands, and she's praising the Lord, and I go, that's awesome. I said, Did you, have you worked your stuff out with your mother yet? No. Go do it. You're wasting your voice and your praise because the bridge is down with your mother. You got it? You know what I'm saying? Now, for some of us, maybe it's been a love loan that's gone. There's nothing we can do about that. Ask the Lord to change your heart. Turn it over to Him. In some other areas, there might be people that we've had odds with for years that want nothing to do with us and they don't want to talk to us anyway. And so we just say, okay, Lord, then you tell us to forgive our brother from our heart. So just do that. Please do that. So that we don't hold this stuff against our brothers anymore. So he says, uh, that's what you're to do. Verse 3, he tells them what not to do. Do nothing from rivalry. That means pride. To rival someone is to stand over someone. To be superior in your relationship over someone. To be against someone. Rivals are against each other. So he's saying, do nothing. And when Paul says do nothing, guess what that means? Do nothing. Out of pride or superiority or insisting on your own rights. Do nothing that way. Um, I've mentioned this before. I had an elderly couple in, in Cornerstone. I was a pastor there for 15 years locally here. And just a sweet little elderly couple. And uh, they used to say to me, Bill, we decided... 15 years ago as a couple, we'd rather be happy than right. We would be hap rather be happy than right. You know, some individuals will go down in flames and put a wall up with a loved one just so they could be right. That's not Christ. Do nothing from rivalry or concern or conceit, 
But in humility, and that's the rest of the theme of the chapter, in humility, count others. This is a big one, folks, this phrase. In humility, and he's talking about the people that you don't like right now, the people that you're at odds with, who are the hardest people to be humble towards. They're the most difficult. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, before the Lord, are they really more significant? No. But as far as resolving our crisis and humbling ourselves, we make the first steps to consider their pain before ours. That's what he's saying. It doesn't mean we don't have a voice. It doesn't mean we can't have good boundaries. It doesn't mean we can't speak the truth in love. It doesn't even mean we can't confront sometimes. But matters concerning unresolved stuff that's bringing harm to the body of Christ, may it start with you. You, 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 and me. May it start with us to consider them more significant, at least their need at the time, than us. Them's are hard words. He goes on. It's like, come on, Paul, let up a little bit. Verse 4. Let each of you, now this is all individual stuff. He's not talking to a group anymore. He's talking to all of us individually. And as I'm talking right now, I know exactly who I'm supposed to contact. You got anybody in your mind? I know exactly who I'm supposed to contact. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So I'm glad Paul inserted that because the significant word is a strong word. Paul here is saying, consider your own interest. Just don't look first and foremost to your own interest. Consider the needs and the interests of others. Now, just a little sidebar. This is a good illustration for marriage. Um, Paul says to husbands in Philippians 3, Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. Or live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, spend the rest of your married life as a husband finding out who your wife is. What blesses her? What stresses her? What breaks her heart? What makes her anxious? How does she feel love? And get out of your own heads and consider her interest. Women are to do the same to men. Just an example. He's telling them to stop. Get out of your heads. And forget what the issue is and start walking in humility and admit when you're wrong and own your own stuff. Don't own anyone else's stuff. Just own your own. It's too passive to own other people's stuff. That's not honest. And it's too arrogant to not own anything. You know the big narcissistic word out there? One of the symptoms of a true narcissist is that they own nothing about what they've done wrong. As a matter of fact, to make matters worse, what they've done wrong to others is exactly what they say the other people have done to them in detail. But we're not narcissists, we're believers. Yeah? So let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is where everything changes. So he's talking about them resolving their problems. 
And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit catches him up with what Christ has done. And he uses Christ's example of humility for them to work out their own problems. Now, I've never looked at the Christmas story or the birth of Christ that way. I look at it the way you do. We sing our praise to our Savior. We sing our love to the one that left his throne above and came down to this musty, muddy earth when he didn't have to and subject his glorious life into the womb of a 14-year-old poor Jewish girl. And he knew what he was walking into. He knew he was going into the Colosseum to face the gladiators and the animals. And he still did it. Paul says, verse 5, right in the middle of trying to encourage them to take care of each other and resolve it, he says, um, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ Jesus gave you the mind of Christ. God gave you the mind of Christ. You're supposed to think like the Lord Jesus. Your motivations should growingly with time and God's grace be the motivations of Jesus. We're not talking right now. We're talking in our sanctification, which is our growth process through life. But what I like is he's saying we already have the mind of Christ. We already have the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you about your conflict, which is already in Jesus Christ. So it's not like we got to drum it up. We already have it. You know, I'll, I'll talk to a husband on occasion and he's really, really angry and he's having a hard day. It goes two ways too. I'm not just picking on the man. Hard time getting past this particular issue with his wife. And, you know, um, you know, we talk about spiritual leadership, what that looks like, what it doesn't look like. Huge misunderstanding on what that looks like. Huge misunderstanding on submission. Big cultural misunderstanding there. And so I tell the man, I go, you don't have to um, get, you don't have to become the spiritual leader. You already are. Now act like it. You already are. You don't have to sign up for it. That's part of the mind of Christ. You're the spiritual leader. Now act like it. And do everything you can find out on how to do that in the word or counseling or whatever. Teaching. So he's saying, you already have the mind of Christ. It's there. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you with that. And think about this conflict as Christ would have you think about it. And one of the things I say to marriage couples all the time, because sometimes we get so fired up that we say stupid things and then we can't take them back and then we, you know, we feel foolish and we hurt and best thing to do is take time out, take a walk, talk to the Lord. But here's a little sidebar, no charge on this. If you and your spouse agree to take a time out in order to process it, don't follow your spouse around the house. Give respect. See, I tell a lot of guys, the, the, the reason women follow you around like that, because they're pretty sure you're not coming back to talk about it. So you make a commitment to talk about it, and then give each other grace and respect to go work it out. And by the way, when we work it out, we have conflict. Does God speak to us in megaphone when we're by ourselves and we're wounded or not? He does me. He gets really loud when I'm in conflict and I'm alone. He gets really clear. So we go back and hopefully resolve it. We just don't return to part two. Okay, then he goes on. Have the mind of Christ. Verse six. Who though 
Now he's getting on to some lofty preaching, and he's just thinking only about who Christ was and what he did. And he's hoping they get the message on how they resolve their issues. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. Stop right there. Did you know that the Lord Jesus was both God and man? He was in the form of God internally. He was God. He was God in the flesh. But externally, he had all of the physical makeup, emotions, Pain, frustrations, everything that you and I experience in this body, he had. So he was 100% God in the flesh, and that never stopped. But he was also, and it's a mystery, how can he be 100% 100%? It's a mystery. He was also 100% man. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet what? Without sin. And so, he said, we have the mind of Christ, though he was in the form of God when he came. So he was God, subjecting himself to a womb, and everything else he knew he would face. Not the least of which was a Roman cross. He says, so he was still God and always will be God, but he left his divinity aside, sort of. Sort of. So that he can take on the form of man and relate to us and share his love by what he did. The miracles the cross, the beatings, the empty tomb. He was in the form of God. He was still God, but he didn't look at that as an equal to God. In other words, he was equal to God, full, complete, total divinity. He had divine and heavenly rights as the creator of the universe. We read in Genesis, let us make man in our own image. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus was creator as well. So he had all of the sovereign creative power. He had all of the divine glory which boggles our mind. He also spoke the worlds into existence with a thought. And we read here that he humbled himself so much that he lowered himself and assumed that he become a man in the limitations of the flesh, though he was still God, and he, he didn't exercise his rights, he didn't count the equality that they had with God as something that he would hold on to temporarily. So he actually walked away from his position to come to earth. He didn't grasp jealousy. Now, well, that's me. I'm part of the Godhead too. I want to maintain my power and my authority and my rights. Paul says he didn't even consider calling himself equal with God, but instead chose for a season to take on the form of the limitations of a man. He did not count equality with God as things within the grace. He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He took a lower position 
He said, I'm giving up all of my rights. Now just pause there. Just think about the conflict. Like, what do we have to prove? Sometimes it's better to just take the high road, God's road, and say, I'm sorry. I mean, I never thought of looking at Jesus this way when you talk about his birth. That's what Paul's doing. He's using his birth as an example for them to humble themselves and resolve their issues in their life as Christians. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form, it says servant, you know what it means? Slave. Slave didn't have rights. Slaves were owned in those days, and they became their master's property until the master decided when to maybe set them free or not. So he not only humbled himself to leave his throne of grace, but he actually came as a slave to serve his father in obedience and to give up his life as a ransom for you and I. He made himself nothing. Maybe that's what we need to do if we can't resolve matters. Just make ourselves nothing. I mean, I know that can be unhealthy too and all the counseling stuff. But I'm talking about how long do we have to do this? What would the Lord have you do? There you go. Lord, what would you have us do? For the people we're thinking about right now. Lord, what would you have us do? How about that? To actually ask him, what would you have us do? And then submit to it. He came in the form of the servant being born in the likeness of man. I wish I knew more of the mind of God to understand how much he actually walked away from and gave up, but we can't. I think one of the reasons there's no more tears in heaven and we'll worship forever is because this will actually make sense to us. And when we find out, I mean, we're beside ourselves as it is that he would call us into his kingdom knowing who we were. But can you imagine once this hits us in glory... And we realize exactly what he did to bring salvation to us. We'll never stop singing. Never. He made himself, taken on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He limited. He took less. He lowered himself to be one of us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of the death, even the death on the cross. You know, Augustine was one of the early church fathers, quite revered. Anybody know what century he was in? Second, third, fourth? Augustine. Anyhow, uh, someone asked Augustine um, to list some of the simple principles of the faith, and he answered, humility, humility, humility. Now, there's one thing about humility I know. When we're being walking in humility, we don't know it. Like, you can't just say, I was really humble in that situation today. I mean, did you see it? Did you know how much humility I took with that phone call? So one of the aspects of humility is that we actually don't know it. Because it's becoming natural because of the life of Christ in us. And we can certainly say, Lord, break me. Show me, lead me, and he will lead you into situations where you will be quite humbled. I assure you of that. But we need this. This is what we need. Humility. 
seems to work every time in resolving conflict. Although you can humble yourselves and the person still may not want anything to do with you, but you still did the right thing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. I would call that humility. Even the death, I like what Paul says, even the death of the cross, that's an emphasis. He didn't just humble himself and take on the sins of the world just to the point of death. It was like even death on the cross. There was no more inhumane form. You can read any books you want on history. There was no more inhumane and torturous form of death than the Roman crucifixion. And isn't it interesting that that's when Christ was there during that time? So Paul says he wasn't just obedient, humble himself for you and I, so that we would have salvation. He took the pain and the punishment for us. But it was actually done on a cursed Roman cross. Like, what else does he have to show us? And then the last section, how can we not like the last section, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, And that includes every person that has ever lived who has cursed Jesus to his face and shook their fist and died cursing before they breathed their last to everyone who names the name of Christ. We will all, we've said this before, those who we hope come to Christ who might denounce him, we hope they don't, but they might denounce him, they will also bow their knee. But it will be too late. God has exalted them. So just end with this then. So he came, he humbled himself when he came. He laid aside his own rights and his divinity temporarily. He took on the limitations and the pain and the form of us. Then he went even to a cross to be brutalized and tortured for three hours before he said, it is finished. And with that, God broke open the tomb. He walked out in his resurrected body with the nail prints to prove it to his disciples, which Thomas didn't believe at first, and then he did. He ascended to heaven. He's exalted at the right hand of God. So that's all stuff we cherish and love and we'll understand more someday. But maybe the answer to some of our conflict is that we humble ourselves and take on the hit and not make a deal about it anymore. What do you think? possibly. And if that doesn't work, come to me for counseling. I'm here a couple more weeks and I'm, no. (laughs) Lord, we wish, we know we will know the depths and the truths of these precious jewels that we've looked at tonight. The value, the eternal joy we'll have when we truly recognize to the extent Because we will see you as we're known when we arrive on the golden shores. And we will throw our crowns at your feet. And it's going to dawn on us someday exactly what you did by leaving your glory and becoming exalted and dying on even a Roman cross. We thank you for it. 
And then for any of us specifically, Lord, I know who I'm thinking of now, but any of us specifically that need to reach back or need to pass the peace pipe or resolve or make the first step or whatever it takes, specifically for brothers and sisters in Christ, specifically, that, Lord, you would put a burden on our heart for them and help us with courage and with your example to lower ourselves and break the sound barrier in order to resolve it as you would have us because we have the mind of Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.